0: Hi and welcome to the episode 3 of We Intend to Move on Your Works, the spin-off podcast series about the depiction of the American Civil War in war games with Stuart Ellis Gorman and Pierre Vanier Jones. I'm Fred Serval and I will be facilitating this discussion led by Stuart and Pierre where they discuss critically the games depicting the American Civil War, playing them mostly in a chronological order and sharing their thoughts along the way. Last week, we were in the Shenandoah Valley, uh, and I got to learn more about the character of Stonewall Jackson. That was super interesting. And I was wondering, uh, where are you taking us this week, guys?
1: So we're going now to eastern Virginia, to the peninsula. So there's there's three peninsulas that form up the eastern coast, the main east part of the eastern coast of Virginia, that go into the Chesapeake Bay. We are going to be on the originally named Virginia Peninsula of Virginia. <laughs> Very original. So There's
2: American names. Yeah. yeah it's,
1: it's how it be, baby. So I'm going to jump back a little bit before this, though, and talk a bit about how we, we get here, which I mentioned a bit in the previous episode, but it's worth reiterating. So, important things to know are in August 1861, so about a month after Manassas, uh, the Union decided to radically reform their military, realizing this is going to be a longer fight and the kind of more ad hoc military structure they had before the war. Because I think, remember from the first episode, the Union, mil- the U.S. military was sixteen thousand men before eighteen sixty, and at this point, by eighteen sixty-two, it's easily ten times that. So you needs a, a radical restructuring. So in 18, six, August eighteen sixty-one, the Army of the Potomac is formed under General George B. McClellan, and this is going to be the force that on the Union side that's going to fight the rest of the Virginia campaign and theater in the theater. So they are a much more disciplined and better organized force than we saw at Manassas, much better trained, much better equipped, newer weapons, newer uniforms. It's less kind of ad hoc than it was then. Soon after, in November 1861, the venerable General Winfield Scott, who was the overall commander of the Union until this point, retires. Winfield Scott is his own fascinating character. He had fought in the War of 1812. He was the one of the overall commanders of the Mexican-American War, who heroically won that war for America. I mean, heroically, if you're American. And he was kind of at the end of his career now in the early American Civil War. And a useful fact or fun fact about Winfield Scott is that he is, in fact, a Southerner and he refuses to leave the Union when the South secedes. I believe he's Virginian. I can claim that for him. So he he's one of these cases. There are many Southern officers who stay in the army and Winfield Scott is one of the most famous. So McClellan has also put an overall command of the Union Army at this point. In January 1862, McClellan decides that instead of marching south from Washington to take Richmond, so Richmond is a little over 100 miles due south of Washington, just about due south of Washington, in the center of Virginia. That's the capital of the Confederacy, and Washington, D.C., obviously, is capital of the U.S. He instead decides that he wants to land his army east on the peninsulas and then march the shorter distance overland from the coast. Now, this is a shorter distance to cover on land. It is also... Much of Virginia is bisected east to west by rivers. Going this way will allow him to avoid pretty much all of that. The downside is that he will have to run his supply lines quite a long way. But this is made possible by the fact that the Union has an overwhelming naval superiority position. Uh, They have much more powerful ships, and they're building ships at a far faster rate than the Confederacy can. So they basically have naval supremacy for the entire war. Uh, In March 1862, uh, Joseph Johnston, the Confederate commander, relocates his army from what well, was camped kind of near Washington, down to counter McClellan, who was landing on the peninsula. And then at this time, the there's a discovery that much of the arm, much of the force that was besieging Washington, which I put in air quotes that you can't see, uh, turned out to be basically fake. They were using what's called Quaker guns, which are just logs made to look like cannons, which was a little embarrassing, particularly for McClellan, who had insisted he couldn't attack out of Washington, which is something we'll come back to when we we'll talk a bit more about him. McClellan is also relieved of overall command of the Union at this point to ostensibly to free him up for command in the field although at this point we're seeing Lincoln and McClellan are beginning to get on each other's nerves, which is another theme that'll carry with us for a couple of games Now I'm not going to go through the entire peninsula campaign that's it's very long there's a lot of battles it's very slow the key kind of made turning points in the the campaign come at the end of May. So on the 31st of May to the 1st of June, there's the Battle of Seven Pines, which is done at kind of near the end of the Virginia Peninsula. So remember, the peninsula joins the main body of Virginia. This is an inconclusive and bloody battle, but the major outcome is that Joseph Johnson is wounded in action and has to be sent to a hospital to recover, and he is replaced in overall command of Confederate forces by Robert E. Lee. So this is the, the beginning of Lee's great reputation Lee then takes command, and on the 25th of June through the 1st of July, he launches a major offensive against McClellan, which is now known as the Seven Days Battles. This is a series of battles, as you might guess from the name, and they are extremely costly to the Confederacy. Lee generates far more casualties than he deals, but he slowly drives McClellan back, even though McClellan has a larger army than Lee does. And by the by, so by the 2nd of July... McClellan is basically retreated back to Harrison's Landing at the end of the peninsula, where he's under protection of Union ships. Uh, and then on the 4th of August, Lincoln will order the abandon orders the abandonment of the peninsula. And the Army returns to Washington now to deal with a new offensive coming, no- coming towards the north by the Confederates. Another important detail that happens in this period is that on the 23rd of July, Lincoln chooses Major General Henry Halleck to be the overall commander of the Union. Henry Halleck we will talk about more when we go out west, he uh, cuts his teeth in the Western Theater, and then is promoted, uh, and will be in, I think, overall command until Grant takes command much later in the war. One of the main themes about the Peninsula Campaign that's always made it very difficult to understand and kind of hard for historians to talk about is that the key factor is really McClellan himself, and McClellan's kind of inability to lead in the field. There are people who will defend McClellan, but broadly, McClellan is is not well regarded as a commander. And he frequently sends back letters, you know, to the War Department, for example. He insists that Lee has 200,000 Confederate troops and that he's vastly outnumbered. And in fact, this is where we get this issue with the Valley Campaign, where McClellan is saying, send me more troops, send me more troops, I'm way outnumbered. And Lee is, has Jackson lost the Valley Campaign to pull troops into the Valley rather than going to McClellan. And McClellan actually outnumbered Lee Lee never had more than about 92,000 troops that he could field at a time. Um, so there's and they have the other issue with these Quaker guns where he's convinced there's all this artillery and it turns out that it's fake. So there's there's a real issue where McClellan is reluctant to be aggressive, even in from a position of strength.
0: And maybe just to clarify and, and get a bit more context on 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 this peculiar character and 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 theme of the campaign, is it mostly uh, an intelligence issue from the Union, or is it really a specificity of that commander?
2: Yeah, is it confidence or intelligence? Yeah.
1: So th- I mean, this is where we get into debates about you know to what degree was he following his intelligence? It is worth. I mean, I think part of the stark contrast comes in the fact that you know we have to always talk to consider U.S.S. Grant, even though he's not in this theater at this time, who is an, a consistently aggressive commander, and also that Lincoln wants an aggressive commander throughout the war lincoln is looking for generals who will attack and that's one of the things he is searching for so it's arguable that mcclellan is acting on good intelligence it's also very arguable that he is interpreting intelligence like he is you know favoring the negative intelligence that's bad that you know says bad things about his position and ignoring intelligence that suggests that he is in a good position because you obviously you get a a mix of both um but it's clear that What Lincoln wants and what the situation needs is an aggressive commander and that is something that, you know, is offered elsewhere in the Army and that McClellan just isn't that commander. Now, one thing that we will say in praise of McClellan, the Army of the Potomac is a well-organized unit. He made a lot of that. Like, he was very instrumental in the formation of the Potomac. He, He was a very good desk general in the sense of back office logistics, training the Army, all of that stuff he was very good at. It really seems to have been field command that was where he fell down. It's also interesting things about McClellan. He's only 35 in this campaign. Uh, he's sometimes known as Little Mac and was often compared unfavorably to Napoleon in the sense that he was in, in kind of the way that people would mock Napoleon as being, if they see him as like too big, having too big an ego and not being able to live up to it. So there's a lot of kind of comparisons to that. So he, he's an interesting figure. And I think he makes for one of the reasons I wanted to try the Peninsula campaign was to try and see how you would represent this kind of his command and his issues uh so the game we played is re- i was i initially thought it was the whole peninsula campaign but it's really just the seven days battles at the end of the campaign
0: so yeah and that's the question i was about to ask so for that specific period in time what was the game that you picked and why did you pick this game
1: so we picked the late unpleasantness two campaigns to take richmond by steve rue i was looking for something a bit more operational Mm-hmm. because i think the seven days in particular the peninsula as a whole and the seven days in particular are a little bit hard to grasp just doing like each battle on its own because it's really the additive element of each of each battle because lee loses most of these battles he takes more casualties and sustains great losses but he kind of gains little inches each time and erodes mcclellan's confidence in his position and the fact that lee keeps attacking convinces mcclellan that lee is in a stronger position than he really is and mm. Because he keeps thinking, well, he just keeps attacking me. He must have more troops. He must be prepared to to keep sacrificing his men because he has so many men to do it with. Um, He doesn't really consider that Lee might just be going all out and hoping that he'll give in, basically. So I wanted that kind of scale of it rather than something tactical. This game is, it's certainly two games. It has a game on Grant's Overland campaign, which is an 1864 campaign. So we'll talk about that another time. Uh, And then this, the Gates of Richmond Peninsula, or really just seven days campaign. Uh, the map kind of suggests that it was meant to be a full a full peninsula campaign. Uh, I know that the designer actually passed away before the game came out, so I wonder if it was, it was somewhat incomplete. We might
0: talk about that. But and Pierre, you were you were about to say something.
2: Yeah, it, it's a big map. It's a big map, and I think we're going to touch on that in in the actual sort of discussion of the mechanics. But okay, we we felt that in the gameplay. Yeah. Okay, but that makes sense. But before we talk about the game specifically,
0: uh, I wanted first to discuss the title of the game. For the people who've already started listening this uh, podcast series, both Pierre and I, we don't know much about the American Civil War, nope. and I have no idea what uh, late unpleasantness uh, refers to. So can we start here and better understand what is what this title is all about?
1: Yeah, so it's worth knowing that Almost everything in the American Civil War is contested. And one of the elements that's been contested since the war was happening is its name. So fundamentally, there's a split. I mean, the position of the United States is that this is a rebe- the Confederacy is a rebellion. This is a civil war. Or even in the late 19th century, they would call it the War of the Rebellion. And that it eventually softened that to the U.S. Civil War but it's the notion that this is we are one country and this is an internal conflict confined to a single nation whereas the confederate position is that this that they separated legally and legitimately from the union and then were invaded by the united states and conquered and subjugated so this is a war between nations the most commonly used euphemism for this from a neo confederate perspective is the war between the states But there are other kind of euphemisms that you would encounter. I certainly did growing up in Virginia. um, And the War of Northern Aggression is another slightly more extreme one. Although I did like, I knew someone in my school who called it the War of Northern Aggression. And (laughs) the Late Unpleasantness is an interesting one. Because the Late Unpleasantness falls into this camp where it's, you know, kind of denying it this qualification of being a rebellion or a civil war. But it's also kind of tongue-in-cheek calling it the late unpleasantness, because this is one of those other euphemistic names. So it's it's kind of a weird one. It sits I think it kind of sits a little bit into that Neo Confederate camp of not acknowledging the Civil War or even really the War of the Rebellion, which is a great name for it. I think we should go back to using the War of the Rebellion. It's great. It might be confusing with the Revolutionary War, but we can get past that. But I think it's it's not as far as War of Northern Aggression <laughs> by a long <laughs> shot. But it's definitely leaning that way. And I think the designer probably meant it tongue-in-cheek because it is often a thing said tongue-in-cheek by Southerners, but it doesn't mean it doesn't carry that stain of you know, confederatism that is kind of baked into the lost cause.
0: Is there more information in the designer notes about the choice of the title? Why did the designer pick this? Or do we have more context? Is it really just tongue-in-cheek or like is there better? Can we get any form of understanding or for the motivation of picking this title?
1: I couldn't see anything. Uh, I kind of mentioned the designer passed away before the game came out.
2: There are some designer notes, though, but I I don't believe they, I think it's more of the, it touches more on the reason why he wanted to make the game rather than, rather than the actual title itself. Like he, he mentions living in, in central Virginia and stuff like that. But, but yeah, I don't don't think he touches on the controversy of it at all or anything like that.
0: I guess we'll park this for now because the title is just the title. Then the thing is, what does the game depict and how does it depict it? I'd like to understand how does this game work? Just for context, I I watched a bit of of you guys uh, streaming a play on the Discord server. I watched for 10, 15 minutes, something like this. I was a bit confused because originally I thought it was a block game. Then I realized that those were counters and I didn't really understand how the game works. So can you give us a broad overview of yeah what's the what's the game what war game family it's part of what are the core mechanics and what should we expect sure
2: so it's a point-to-point operational game it's this one is the gates of richmond the scenario we we started at, and you really start at the gates of richmond y- you would be excused for thinking it was a block game because i think firstly a lot of it requires um rests on the fog of war and how it portrays the fog of war. And I I think, as a side note, I think Stuart and I would agree that it would do better as a block game. Mm. But it is really point to point. Um, we start, I think my closest unit starts three steps, three points away from where I'm meant to get to, Richmond itself. And it's quite an intimate layout at the beginning. You, you, there isn't much of an approach to battle, as it were. It's more of a... This is the situation. You're face to face with the enemy. How are you going to deal with it? Um, it uses a lot of cards. Uh, you draw. I think. Correct me if I'm wrong, Stuart. I think you draw eight cards at the beginning of a, of uh, of the game, yeah. and then at the end of each turn, you draw two. Is that right?
1: Yeah, eight cards to start with, then two.
2: Yeah, and you can use the cards at any point outside of sort of in the middle of a combat. Uh, and the it's... cards. Yeah, go ahead.
1: It's not a card-driven game, we should stress. No. It's yeah, a car- it. yeah, the activations are standard kind of counter. Yeah, exactly.
2: Record. Yeah,
1: but yeah. the cards have effects. They're just pure event cards.
2: Pure mm-hmm. event cards. Like, I mean, I think, and this is a, a key facet of the campaign. For example, one of the cards is called Jackson Falls Asleep. It means that Jackson's stack of units cannot move, for example, in his point for that entire turn. Um, The the map itself is pretty big. I mean, I think it's like... thirty. Wait a minute.
0: I I just want to come back to that card. Yes, You have a card that prevents an opponent's unit to to, move... A faction's unit to move? Oh, Fred, we have many cards. Okay, but just just that card specifically, I think it's interesting. So you said Jackson falls asleep and that prevents the confederate troops to move for a turn, is that it?
3: That is right, yeah, yeah. Jackson's core
0: specifically, yeah. Okay,
2: and and who has
0: that card? Is it the union player?
2: It's a shared deck that you draw from. Okay. You, should, you draw the deck, so if you don't draw that as the Union player, you as in if the Confederate player then draws it, then as a Union player, you're out of luck. And I think this will touch on as something that we, we maybe don't love um, because personally, I drew many of these cards that didn't, that forced the Confederate, I was playing the Union here. I drew many of the cards that forced Confederate units to not move. And I had a very easy victory when I played against Stuart. I played the game against again, Solo. Obviously, it's a very different experience with the fog of war and everything. But I had a bit of a better time actually playing. But that that is a very core facet of the game I found. Okay.
0: And I wanted to clarify this because we we had some discussions uh, for people who follow the channel. We had some discussion about CDG in general. I think there was a a big chat that where Mark Hammer and Jason Matthews, and Voloko Runke were on YouTube talking about this and talking about events. And I, I think it's not a mystery for people who know me that I am highly skeptical of event cards that impact your opponent with something random like weather or something that happens on their side the fact that as a, the fact that the historical actor had no agency in this happening yeah. the fact that the simulation gives you that agency to do something about it feels extremely odd, but Uh, I guess we'll come back to it later. It's just that I wanted to clarify to make sure that I understood what you were saying.
2: I mean, on on that point, there is literally a card called Rain and the effect is no attacks are permitted this turn. And, but, and you play this whenever you want? Whenever you want, at the beginning of your opponent's yeah. term. If yeah, okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Interesting. So exactly yeah. on, the, on the note of, the, of that discussion, really. Okay, but then, yeah, I
0: I, I won't, we'll come back to this. I won't interrupt anymore, so yeah.
2: I, I, I feel like there are maybe three zones in the game, if, if you'd agree, Stuart. There's the zone around Richmond, which is a pretty hot zone where there are a lot of units. There's a zone northeast of it, uh, opposite, sort of on the other side of the Chickahominy River, um, where <laughs> The Confederate troops sort of wrap around and try and probe at the, the rear of the of the Union troops. And there's the southern zone with Harrison's Landing that, that Stuart mentioned earlier as well. I found that the game didn't really have any, in both of my plays of it, no one got any anywhere close to Harrison's Landing. It was essentially out of the game, which I found strange. After having heard the sort of historical background from Stuart, but I think that's something we can touch on in a bit. Okay. Well, what did you think, Stuart? Did I miss? Anything oh, just that?
0: maybe, maybe yeah. before, before, before jumping into Stuart, can you give us a sense of what you say is the the complexity of the of the game?
2: I think it's relatively light. Um, yeah. It's it's definitely not a, a high complexity game. It's it plays quite quickly, um, and I honestly the, I preferred it the second time I played solo. Because it, it was, it's a nice back and forth. It, it's it's a light game. You can play it in an afternoon in a session.
1: Yes, I would agree with what Pierre said. It's, it's a fairly light game. I think the event cards are really hot mess. Uh, particularly the one we didn't mention is that there's also quite a few cards that can dictate, that can force an attack. So you play a card and you say this core or this division has to make an attack on your opponent's turn. It
2: has to be the first attack as well. Yeah, it has to be yeah. the first
1: attack. The first yeah. thing they have to do is they have to attack with this person. So there's a lot of kind of the card play that you can control what your opponent can and can't do. And some of it is a bit weird. Like the attack one is very weird. The Jackson falling asleep is feels like it should be more just an event that triggers. But one thing to mention is the Jackson, who we talked about in the Valley campaign, basically forced marches his whole way his way east and arrives in time to participate in the seven days battle. And then his divisions are just so wrecked they don't perform very well, and Jackson keeps falling asleep when he's supposed to be launching attacks.
2: And (laughs) I think he falls
1: asleep twice and just, like, doesn't attack. Not a good look. (laughs) Yeah, so it's quite embarrassing for him. But, like, it is a thing you'll see a lot in Seven Days Battles games, which there's not a lot, but there are some. There's at least one Against the Odds magazine game, and there's uh, Worthington did one as well. a, A big theme is that there'll be some mechanic to capture Jackson falling asleep. Because it's such a f- element of it.
2: You guess the odds game has a has a little counter with Jackson with a little eye eye mask on, doesn't it? <laughs> mm. <laughs> to show that he's a that's best. great. Yeah, I love yeah, that. Yeah. <laughs> so
1: yeah, I think it's really it really feels like it's a game that was meant to be more of the campaign because it has all this map you just don't use. It just starts you at seven days where you're just like right at the right at the entrance, and I could see it. You Know it's very swingy, particularly with the cards. Like, you just you won on the end of the second turn
2: yeah. on our game, and I should notice because, one. yeah, because yeah,
1: you just had a card that let you march one further and you just walked your way in.
2: And both turns, I had cards that just stopped Jackson's stack from, from moving at all, so he had no way to have and his my hand
1: through. was full of cards that would allow McClellan to do cool things, which wasn't any use to me as the Confederate player, yeah. So <laughs> Uh, it, it is fairly simple. The a thing that I found kind of confusing initially was that like the unit, all the counters, they have a, a strength value and a leadership value. And when you actually do combat, the strength value only really matters if you outnumber your opponent two to one. Otherwise it's just, it's you roll a die and you add the difference in between your leadership and your opponent's leadership. And then you can, some you can like senior commanders like Lee doesn't have a strength value. He only has a leadership value, so he can join a, a battle to, like, boost it, mm. but then also runs the risk. There's a chance on the CRT you have to roll and see if he dies. So there's that element. But, like, McClellan's bonus is zero, so there's, like... <laughs> He's
2: awful. It's, and he, he, it, died this, yeah, and he died in this yeah. game. And he died in this <laughs> game. Yeah.
1: But That that feels like a weird design decision, and there's a lot of... It feels very great man that it really feels like it comes down to, like, how good is the leader. yeah. And not so, and only like a little bit down to how good of them. Like it doesn't really matter how good the units are. It's just, there has to be tons of
2: them. And I think, I think it's, yeah, go go ahead. Yeah.
0: I was wondering, so you, you, and it's true that on this show, we're not uh, big fans of, of this big man of history (laughs) uh, approach, but in a way you started by talking about McLean and talking about the fact that he's a very unique character and a very important theme of that campaign. So in that sense, don't you think it's normal that uh, they leave more room to the leaders because it was so critical that the union leader was, was the way he was in the way the, the campaign happened?
2: So I, I think that it's, it's odd how it's reduced down to a simple leadership rating in mm, the context it should be more. Of how, how this works, especially when it does quite a good job with some of the cards of actually portraying the, the, the issues that McClellan faces. Like, for example... There's a card called Magruder Puts on a show where Magruder, that he's a Confederate leader, I believe, and he can and their cards effect can add two Confederate dummy units. Um, that are like face down. The, the union can't see what it is. And that really that that does show the sort of personalities of the different units, and, and it shows how certain leaderships, how McClellan looking at Magruder, thinks that there are more units there, so more dummy units appear, you know. And I quite like that side of it, but reducing it down to a leadership rating. I think is not the way to go, you know, especially when so awful.
1: Yeah. I think it, it kind of fails to capture some of McClellan's things. One of the interesting dichotomies of McClellan is that the army of the Potomac loves him. He's hugely popular. He's very charismatic and much beloved. And so in a way he has this kind of charisma that makes him good at leading the army. His issue is that he isn't willing to attack. It's not that he's like incompetent, like he can lead the army on the march. He can command it competently when he needs to. It's just that when it comes to that moment of like fully committing to the big attack, he panics. He wants everything to be perfect before he commits to doing an attack. He's not willing to like risk anything. And I don't think that's captured in it because this kind of, I think, implies that he's like an uncharismatic, boring person. And it's like, it's not really, there's a lot of complexity going in there. And it's it's more an issue of, his broader strategic decisions rather than his personal charisma that undermines him in this campaign.
2: Absolutely.
0: That's, yeah, that's actually, that's really interesting. And and it opens a lot of question, design question about how to represent such a thing, because I guess it must be a hard balance to strike as a designer, because as you said, it looks like the union had everything to win Mm. that campaign easily. Uh, they have really good troops they have good equipment uh, they have a lot they have a lot bigger numbers they don't have an intelligence problem and i guess that you need to find a clever way to penalize the the union player without having this uh, design for effect uh kind of uh, decision something that actually modelizes the fact that mcclellan has has those issues and you both feel that the game didn't do a good job at portraying this which is from what I hear, probably one of the most pivotal aspects of the campaign.
1: I would say so. I think a similar kind of challenge is that, to a degree, it, tri- it uses dummy units, which uh, Pierre mentioned, to try and make a bit of massed fog of war. I think there's kind of an issue with that, with kind of trying to represent MacGruber specifically. So MacGruber, I mentioned, he's defending the gates of Richmond, and he's often using an undersized force to appear like a larger force. So he's he's marching troops away at night and then marching them forward in the day, to make it appear to McClellan like a a new wave of Confederates is arriving every morning. So McClellan becomes convinced that the forts outside Richmond are well-supplied and full of troops at the same time that Lee is attacking him on the seven days. So he can't just say, oh, well, Lee is attacking me. That means Richmond is open, so I just take this division and I march straight into Richmond. And I think the dummy troops, There, there is a system in it where if you try to attack a fort, you have to roll on this chart, and 50% of the time you don't attack, which isn't very exciting. It's unfun. <laughs> it's unfun. But there's also, I think the dummy troops are meant to represent that, but I think the dummy troops present an interesting problem because as a player, I know that there are dummy troops, and McClellan didn't know that there were dummy troops. Yeah. McClellan thought every troop was real, and as a player, I just know intellectually that some of the Confederates are fake. And, that's mm-hmm. and so I know yeah. if the gates of Richmond themselves are actually well defended, then I know as a player that Lee's army is where the dummies are, right? So it...
0: Yeah, design-wise, it, it sounds like it could work better as a solo game where dummy groups are actually Schrodinger dummies that you never know if they are dummies or not. And the game system doesn't even know. And you actually maybe randomly <laughs> decide yeah, if they yeah. are dummies actually, or not. Yeah. But yeah, yeah it, it feels like actually it's it's a weird thing to implement as a, as a two-player game. But it's interesting what you say, because it's often an issue that you have uh, for game designers is how do you make players feel like they are experiencing what happened? knowing that they have the historical insights about what actually happened. Um, and in that case, it sounds particularly hard, and that the decisions that we're making in terms of design are not super exciting. But yeah, I don't know if you want to add anything to, to this. I do want to say like one
1: thing I, I did really like about it, because I feel like I'm harshing on it pretty hard, and it's because I didn't particularly enjoy it. But one thing I did quite like was in so in combat, when you attack, there's a, you start your first round of combat, and then on the CRT columns, you have, you know, attacker losses, defender losses. And then there's another column that you use to determine if the fight keeps happening. So in certain results, it'll be like, it's a 2d6 table. So if you're like in the middle of the table, it'll be like, okay, roll another d6 on a one. The, you know, I think the attacker retreats on a four or five, a two to five, the f- you fight another round. And on a six, the de- defender retreats. Hmm. And I quite like that as like, I you don't that. really know who's going to retreat. You don't know how many rounds combat is going to be. One of the few restrictions it puts on card play, which I think would work better if the cards were better developed, is that you can only play cards at the very start of a combat. Yeah. So you can play cards and hope, like, you know, you play your best card and go, I hope this is like a four round combat and it's a one round combat and you're done. Or, you know, you could play a card, you could not play cards because you think this isn't going to be a very important fight. And then it goes three to four rounds and suddenly you're grinding your troops down. So I don't, I don't know that it works brilliantly in with the rest of the systems, but I quite liked that uncertainty about how big a fight was going to be. Mm. And that like, you know, a lot of war games that I played anyway, would, you know, be like, whoever takes the most losses retreats, but that's not strictly going to be the no. case in this. Cause you could take more losses in an earlier battle, but then a random result means that the defender retreats.
2: I mean, especially as Lee lost more, more people. Yeah. You know? Yeah.
1: So it, I think that was like a really, I liked that uncertainty of the combat. That was a really interesting element that I would be curious if any other well, games have used.
2: There are there are some good bits of design like that in this game. Uh, I mean, there's some strange, other, other strange bits like the supply rules for the union were, were just odd to include, I found, because they never came into play until I think they came to play once in both of my, both of the times playing. And even then, not really. It just meant I couldn't move an extra point. Yes, odd inclusions, more development time, I assume, yeah. which would be needed. but That's what I was about to
0: say. What I hear is probably there is a, an interesting game in there, but lacking in development, which, yeah. I mean, Compass Games. <laughs> compass
2: Games, <laughs> I <laughs> love
0: it. yeah. yeah. I, you know, I would be curious. I kind of wonder if
1: the other game, If It Takes All Summer, mm. is better developed. I've seen most of the reviews I saw online were of Focusing It, it on Takes this All One. Summer rather than gates of richmond so i do wonder i I don't know if i wonder enough that i really want to spend time playing it but i do wonder if that game got more of the development and if gates of richmond is the kind of underdeveloped side of it yeah because yeah it really feels like things like the supply rules feel like they were built for a game that was about mcclellan's whole army starting on one of the peninsula points and marching in rather than already being at the gates of richmond and then it's like why do i have this whole supply train yeah yeah
0: so beyond the game itself, and we we started touching upon it a bit when talking about the title, I'm always curious to hear your thoughts about the aesthetics uh, of the game and how do you think it what kind of vision of the American Civil War it conveys. So we we mentioned the the title of the of the game, but, visually or 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 in other aspects of the game what did you feel Stuart about were there some lost cause element so that's the thing that we've been talking about for for the last couple of episodes now but we didn't find a specific example yet do you think that this one you we start to get into uh lost coast uh, territory
1: I think so with the name I think definitely a bit I think there's an interesting kind of element I just, that I, I don't know if I'm like digging too deep in my in my thoughts on it or not but about the the focus on the command and this idea of needing of overwhelming force to get a benefit from the actual numbers of troops you have being this general reflection of this idea of superior confederate generalship particularly in this campaign against an overwhelming union force because there's an idea in the lost cause that basically the you know, there's this commonly said thing by the Southerners—the idea that like any Southern gentleman could whip at least a dozen Yankees—and so they have this idea of like their own martial superiority, but they are defeated by the overwhelming grinding force of an industrialized nation with more people. You know, mm-hmm. so it's just the greater resources and the weight of the Union that defeats them. And I feel that a little bit. It's in interesting this
0: design. because there is there is a clear parallel with. The way World War II on the east front was depicted for a long time in the US. Nazi <laughs> Germany only lost because they ran out of bullets before uh, Russia ran out of men. There is a, an interesting uh, parallel here. I didn't knew about that. So this 2 to 1 ratio only works in one direction. So It
1: works in both directions, but the generally the Union ones are bigger.
2: Yeah, the Union have bigger numbers and the Union are the ones who are attacking always. Yeah, so. it
0: could go in both directions, but just the situation on the board makes it so that it's only relevant to the Union. Pretty much. So yes. Yes. more
1: often you're going to have a situation where, and it's not universal, some of the Confederate generals are very bad, but often you're going to have, like the Confederate commander has a better leadership rating. So he's, you know, the Union might be rated one, attacking a Confederate two or a three, but then the Union has twice as many. So he'll even out the CRT or get a, an edge that way. So the Union kind of, ha- I mean, Pierre played it a second time, so you might have more insight into it, but like,
2: I felt, I felt appreciation was, yeah, like, yeah. the
1: Union strategy is about bringing your overwhelming weight of numbers it against superior U- Confederate commanders.
2: Yeah, absolutely. And I found that the second time. And it, the game just went on longer the second time, which is why I preferred it than, than the first time, because I, I won through complete bullshit card play the first time and it was unsatisfying and and really left a sore taste in both of our mouths didn't it Mm. yeah okay and apart from this on on the aesthetic
0: front so i was looking a bit at the images of the game i saw that they used the right flag so i think that's That's interesting
1: because they they used the proper confederate flag but this is also the army of northern virginia so they actually Uh, should have yes okay they should have used the other one I, i don't know how widespread it was because it's very much associated with lee and Lee's only just taking command at this point, but hmm. I think they probably could have, uh, I think they might've even, I think it might actually be the old flag as well. That one. Cause they changed the flag several times. So there's another one where the flag is mostly white and there's just this iconography in one of the corners of it they used for a while. And then that gets taken out because for one, it looks a little bit too much like a flag of surrender. Yeah, for the other, flag, yeah. It keeps getting dirty <laughs> <laughs> because they're just marching through mud. Like, when it <laughs> rains in Virginia, it really rains,
2: <laughs>
1: which is another thing. I don't think we've seen any of our games, but like a theme. Maybe when we play like GCACW, when it rains, it's like the roads are mud. You can't move.
2: Yeah. Yeah. yeah.
0: <laughs> so it goes. <laughs> any other thoughts
2: or should we jump into the the mini review? I'm good. I think I'm good. Yeah. I think we've we've pretty much covered it. We could touch on other things, like the, the the supply rules and stuff, but I think we've covered the main the main yeah. points really. And you talked a bit about the supply rules, the fact yeah. that
0: there is the uh, inclusion of rules that are not necessarily necessary. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, and maybe some lack of development that is not really surprising, knowing the knowing the publisher, yeah. and especially I guess if maybe the designer uh, died before the release, maybe it was also to be fair unavailable for like yeah yeah. So I don't. He might have been sick before, so maybe he couldn't. I don't know. Uh, really, be there to to finalize it. So we are not sure about this. Obviously, I would ask each of you, as we usually do, maybe to uh, give me a, like a, a one minute review of what were your thoughts of the game, and maybe a recommendation to uh, to our listeners if they should try to, to to find a copy
2: or or not. And we could start with you, Pierre. Sure. I overall, I I don't. After my initial play, I didn't like it. Just straight up, I didn't like it. And then after my second play, when it was more solo, I, I think uh, a little bit shone a bit more to me. It felt a bit of more, there was a bit more of a back and forth and I I saw what the game wanted to be. I don't think it quite reaches those heights, but I honestly would be happy to play it again and I am keen to try the other the other game in the box. Oh, um, okay. I think that being said, the game is like £80 in the UK. That's insane. Um, I really don't think it's worth that. It's a deck of cards, and some counters in a map. It's it, it doesn't feel like it's got the depth. It doesn't feel like it's got the development time to earn that. In my eyes, I would never buy this game but I'd be happy to try, give it another shot. But I don't have high hopes for it, if that makes sense. Yeah, that makes yeah.
1: sense. And and for you, Stuart? I think there's a pretty good block game hiding in this design. Yeah. That isn't there in the current design i think the cards are just qu- really quite bad and i would probably either just get rid of them <laughs> or radically alter them to make the game better you could yeah i think i like s- some of it but then at the same point it's like at what point is it just a simple am i just you know trying to make it a columbia block game and then i kind of like it
3: <laughs> so yeah <at> which <laughs> i wish it just becomes a becomes a, a redesign game. yeah i yeah.
1: really didn't enjoy it i appreciated that it was short i think there's some in there's a few interesting ideas in it but yeah it really feels like it's just an unfinished game like this game wasn't given enough development it maybe just wasn't a finished design because the designer passed away yeah i don't i mean if if pierre wants to play the other one i will play the other one but i would not have been <laughs> uh chomping at the bit to try it I, if it takes all summer
2: I, I, I'm happy to play a different game if another one covers the same. The same. Uh, we, we,
1: have, we have one plan for that, but it's, oh, it's going to be a little yeah. bit. Yeah. The, the Overland campaign, don't you worry, it's going to be a <laughs> long one. Just like look forward to that, everybody. I think, I think hardcore ACW people will be able to guess what I have in mind for the Overland campaign. <laughs> I
2: think, yeah, we, we played this in an evening, and I think the game lived up to its name that evening
0: <laughs> that's that's not nice uh okay but that's 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 i think that wraps up the, the discussion about the game now i'm curious to look into the future uh, so what do you have in uh, in your mind for episode four so what topic you're going to cover and what game you're thinking about
1: so we're going to skip back a little bit earlier in time i slightly messed this up because i thought late unpleasantness was going to be the whole peninsula mm. and not just pretty much the seven days so we're actually going to jump into into the peninsula campaign again but to very slightly before the seven days and we're going to play seven pines or fair oaks by amabel holland which is mm. about the battle that's obviously published by holland spiel uh, in 2017 it's about the battle of seven pines also known as the battle of fair oaks where joseph Johnston is wounded and that results in the promotion of robert e lee so it looks like a fairly it's a tactical hex encounter so I think it'll be interesting. It's nice. Like Amabel makes interesting games. We heard interesting things about this. Uh, shout out to Timothy from the Homo Discord who recommended we try it. So this is also, if you want to recommend games to me, I'm very easily swayed, uh, as Pierre knows. And he loves it when I add games to the list. Oh, I so, yeah, love it. Love it
2: so much. Yeah. yeah, Absolutely. We'll, yeah.
0: And and both Pierre and and and, and Stuart are on, on Twitter, so it's it's easy to uh, to shout Instead at them and, and and yeah. <laughs> and convince them to play other games. I'm I'm super excited that you picked a, a game by Amabel for 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 the next one, as you say. She's a very interesting designer. She always has a very interesting point of view on what she depicts. And whether or not I like her games, I always get something out of them. I mostly like them, uh, but even the few times where I didn't enjoy them, I was still excited to have played them because they were just thought-provoking, interesting. So I'm very really curious about, uh, about this uh, this one. Cool. But I would say... Thanks again for this uh, awesome series. Thanks for the listeners to uh, having uh, followed that discussion. I hope that you enjoyed this episode and see you in a bit for episode four. Thanks, guys. Thank you.
2: Thanks.
3: MacDonald, I'm a native of the isle. Was born among old Erin's bogs when I was but a child. My father fought in '98 for liberty so dear. He fell upon Old Vinegar Hill like an Irish volunteer. Then raise the harp of Erin, boys, the flag we all revere. We'll fight and fall beneath its folds like Irish volunteers. Then raise the harp of Erin, boys, the flag we all revere. We'll fight and fall beneath its folds like Irish volunteers. When I was driven from my home by Anna Presser's hand. I cut to my sticks and greased me blokes and came o'er to this land I found a home and many friends and some that I love dear The jabbers I'll stick to them like bricks and an Irish volunteer Then fill your glasses up, me boys, and drink a hearty cheer To the land of our adoption and the Irish volunteers Then fill your glasses up, me boys, and drink a hearty cheer To the land of our adoption and the Irish volunteers Traitors in the south commenced a warlike raid I quickly then laid down my heart to the devil with my spade To a recruiting office then I went That happened to be near And join the good old 69th like an Irish volunteer Then fill the ranks and march away, no traitors do we fear We'll drive them all to blazes, says the Irish Volunteer Then fill the ranks and march away, no traitors do we fear We'll drive them all to blazes, says the Irish Volunteer Oh, everybody turned out you know, and gold and tinsel, too. But then the good old 69th didn't like these lords or peers they wouldn't give a damn for kings the irish volunteers we love the land of liberty its laws we will revere but the devil take nobility says the irish volunteer we love the land of liberty its laws we will revere but the devil take nobility says the irish volunteer If the traitors in the south should ever cross our roads We'll drive them to the devil as St. Patrick did the toads all short deuces that come just below the ears Made strong and good of Irish and by Irish volunteers Then here's to brave McClellan home, the army now reveres He'll lead us on to victory, the Irish volunteers Then here's to brave McClellan whom the army now reveres He'll lead us on to victory Glasses up, my boys, a toast come blink with me.
2: May Aaron's harp
3: and the starry flag united ever be. May traitors quake and rebels shake and tremble in their fears. When next. Meet the Yankee Boys and Irish Volunteers God bless the name of Washington That name this land reveres Success to Maher and Nugent And their Irish Volunteers God bless the name of Washington That name this land reveres Success to and Nugent And their Irish Volunteers